Wellness Force Radio. Feelings are essential, but they can't dictate our actions. We literally infect each other with our emotions. We came here for a special purpose. Let the purpose unveil itself. Knowing without doing is the same thing as not knowing. They're not just trackers. I'm going to wear this and it's going to help me do the right thing. Wellness Force Radio, episode 120, with nutritional therapy practitioner and the author of The Alzheimer's Antidote, Amy Berger. Alzheimer's disease is regularly referred to now as type 3 diabetes. I mean, it's almost taken for granted that that's, there's a connection there between Alzheimer's and glucose or insulin in the brain. They can measure the decline in the brain glucose metabolism in people at risk for Alzheimer's as young as their 30s and 40s. What's up, my friend? It's your host, Josh Trent, and welcome back to another episode for your weekly access to global experts in all things wellness as we discover the physical and emotional intelligence we need to live life well. Support for this show was brought to you by Perfect Supplements, a company who's passionate about non-GMO, pesticide-free, and real food supplements that fuel us for the wellness journey. Click over to perfectsupplements.com forward slash wellnessforce and be sure to grab a 10% discount by using code wellnessforce at checkout. So the brain and the guts have an incredibly powerful connection. So powerful, in fact, that with the right nutrition, we understand foods can heal our brain and energize to invigorate the nervous system as well. But if our lifestyle becomes filled with processed foods full of artificial ingredients, refined carbohydrates and sugar, over time, our brains begin to face an energy crisis. We're talking about this with Amy Berger today on the podcast, the author of The Alzheimer's Antidote and nutritional counselor at Tuit Nutrition. Amy is uncovering with us in this incredible conversation about the different parts of the brain that have the connection to Alzheimer's and shining a big spotlight on the key scientific research about how a lower carb and higher fat diet can actually help fight chronic neurodegenerative diseases, memory loss, and cognitive decline. Now, even if Alzheimer's doesn't run in your family like it did in mine before my grandmother passed, there's so many of us that are affected by this. This episode, it's full of great advice for preventing disease and keeping a healthy mind for life. So food itself, it's not a cure for metabolic problems or chronic neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. However, if we eat more nutritious foods with plenty of B12 vitamins, healthy fats, and clean non-CAFO sources of animal proteins, we can begin to understand their connection towards easing the symptoms of Alzheimer's, brain fog, and dementia for so many millions of people who out there are suffering. Let's step into this powerful conversation with Amy Berger. Amy Berger is a certified nutrition specialist and nutritional therapy practitioner and the author of The Alzheimer's Antidote. Amy, welcome to the show. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. One of the cool things that I've been reading about as I dove headfirst into your book was different things around the APOE types, how the brain can be healthy, understanding the science behind Alzheimer's, but also how we can have a healthy brain today. I'm curious. There's a lot of you online. Can you share with us something, Amy, that you don't normally talk about? What's something fun about you that people don't know? Oh, something fun. Um, I play the saxophone. I don't know if everybody knows that. <laughs> that is good. How long have you been playing the sax? Oh, since middle school. I was in my college jazz band and I almost minored in music. I mean, I was pretty good back in the day. Right now I'm extremely rusty, but um, I can hold my own. And I play clarinet too, but I, the saxophone is more impressive, I think, when you say you play it. And you're such a highly attuned researcher. Do you think that there's a corollary between people that are in the arts that want to express themselves through instruments and also people that are more right to left brain like researchers? What's the connection there? Oh, I honestly have no idea. Um, I, I am definitely, I guess it's 
I think it's right brain that is more like music and humanities and arts and writing. That's me. Like, don't don't ask me to do physics or math. That is a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> me too. I'm not a great mathematician. But one of the things I love the most in life is understanding what are the things we can do to live life well. And after reading the book, it's very clear to me that there are some proactive things we can all do to beef up the brain and to be healthy. No matter where we are, you actually have said on different interviews that we can be in our late age or early age and we can still kind of reverse some of these deleterious things that are happening to the brain. We all know what type 2 diabetes are. Type 1 people are born with that. But Alzheimer's, Amy, it's been called type 3 diabetes. Why is that? Uh, yeah, if, if that's new to listeners, the phrase type 3 diabetes or diabetes of the brain in the medical literature Alzheimer's disease is regularly referred to now as type 3 diabetes. I mean, it's almost taken for granted that that's, there's a connection there between dementia, you know, Alzheimer's and glucose or insulin in the brain. So where that diabetes thing comes from is that the predominant problem going wrong in the Alzheimer's brain is that neurons in affected regions of the brain have lost the ability to get energy from glucose. And so they basically starve to death. I mean, in the simplest terms, Alzheimer's is an energy crisis in the brain. It's a fuel shortage. And because these cells have lost the ability to get energy from glucose, they sort of starve and they atrophy and they shrivel up. And when they start to atrophy, the connections between these neurons are lost. And so the natural logical outcome of this is memory loss and confusion and personality changes and behavioral disturbances. And it's, you know, I, I basically tell people Alzheimer's is an energy crisis. It's a metabolic problem. And by metabolic problem, I mean it has to do with the way the brain is getting energy. And just if you think at the high level, when you don't get enough sleep, just overall, your body, your brain, you get tired, you get clumsy. Yeah, you're cranky. You make mistakes you don't normally make. Yeah. So what, what do we think happens in the brain when the brain specifically doesn't have enough energy? The same thing. You make dumb mistakes you don't normally make, yeah. except as it gets really bad or really severe, then it becomes a lot more you know, serious. So the brain loses the ability to harness glucose as a fuel or whatever it might be, right? Everything's converted into glucose for the brain or can the brain use other things to fuel itself? That is the bazillion dollar question right there. The fascinating thing about Alzheimer's disease is that even though these cells have lost the ability to get energy from glucose effectively, they can use another fuel. The brain is kind of like a hybrid car. It can run on different fuels. And this other type of fuel that the brain absolutely loves is called ketones. And if, if people out there have ever heard of a ketogenic diet or ketones, ketones are just another source of fuel in the body. Like, you know, the body likes glucose, it likes fats, it likes ketones, it likes all kinds of different substrates. They have done studies in, in animals as well as in humans with Alzheimer's disease that when we get these people's ketone levels elevated, they do have improvements in cognition. Now, it's not some kind of like miracle cure and all of a sudden they're back to their totally normal selves, yeah. but there is noticeable, measurable, subjective and objective measurable improvement in their cognition. We're familiar with insulin resistance We've had many guests talk about this on the show, but when I think of insulin resistance, it's typically in the body, you know, in the bloodstream. But what you write about in your book is insulin resistance inside the brain. This is a brand new topic for me and I think for everyone listening. Can you explain insulin resistance inside of our brain? Yeah, it's not unrelated to insulin resistance in the body or the, we call it the periphery. So the periphery is everything that is peripheral to the central nervous system, which is like the brain and the spinal cord and the nerves. Many, many people with Alzheimer's 
have chronic hyperinsulinemia, which is just a big fancy name that means your your insulin levels are too high too much of the time. Mm. So many, many of these people do have high insulin. And I, I should go back real quick to the type 3 diabetes thing. You might be thinking if if you know someone that has Alzheimer's, well, oh, grandpa's not diabetic. You know, my wife, my coworker, they're not diabetic. For literally, without exaggeration, millions of these people the reason they are not diagnosed with type 2 diabetes is because their blood glucose is normal, but the glucose is only normal because it's being kept in check by sky-high insulin, mm. and nobody's measuring insulin. You have to specifically request a fasting insulin test from the doctor. It's not a standard part of routine blood work right now. I think it should be, and if it was, it would be a total game changer because we could catch these diseases of insulin resistance years, if not decades, before they develop. So getting back to the matter at hand, sorry. So a lot of these people have high insulin in the periphery, but oddly enough, they have lower levels of insulin inside the brain than, than someone with a healthy brain or healthy cognition. Mm. They've done some studies where they give these people intranasal insulin. It's basically like a nasal spray that gets insulin directly into the brain. And again, these people also have improved cognition. Of course, it's just a short-term fix. It's not a long-term solution to the problem. Okay. So to me, it's giving insulin to these people. Okay, maybe that's a short-term boost and we shouldn't neglect the importance of that. But in my opinion, at least, giving this insulin treatment is the same as giving a type 2 diabetic insulin. The last thing most type 2 diabetics need is more insulin. They are awash in insulin. They're swimming in insulin. The answer is not to give them more insulin. It's to resensitize their cells, and in the case of Alzheimer's, resensitize the brain or the blood-brain barrier to the insulin that's already there. And this is pretty heady, <laughs> excuse my nomenclature, but I think a lot of people understand there's some kind of deformity here. There's some kind of of dysregulation. Is it more where the physical structure of the brain, Amy, is being broken down? Or is it how the axons communicate to one another? What's really happening there when we look at this kind of broken pieces in the brain that contribute to Alzheimer's? Oh, good question. You've done your homework, Josh. It's kind of both. The very earliest thing in this illness, at least so far as we understand it now, is this decline in the glucose metabolism. So the, these cells are starving for energy. Because they're starving for energy, it's kind of hard to explain the way a neuron looks, but spread your fingers out, your five fingers. Your palm is the cell body. Your fingers are called dendrites and your arm, your long thing coming out of the cell body is the axon. And the way neurons communicate with each other is the axon sends out a signal and it's received by the dendrites of another neuron. And it's like, it's, it's easier if you can see a picture of it. Maybe if you're listening to this podcast, you can Google a picture of a neuron. And there's a picture in the book. It's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens as these cells start to lose energy, in order to conserve energy to keep the neuron alive, to keep the cell body alive, the cell actually retracts the axons and dendrites. It pulls them back into the cell. In the book, I say it's like a vacuum with a retractable cord you know, you can suck the cord back into the vacuum for storage. So the, the neuron sucks these axons and dendrites back in. So in that sense, it is the physical structure of the brain, the synapse, the space where these neurons communicate with each other is gone because the physical structure of the neuron is changing. And they can actually measure this in the brain scans. They can see that the matter of the brain is actually shrinking. I have to comment here because I'm visualizing this. I was thinking about my fist and I'm feeling that the real insulation within the axon 
on this myelin sheath. That's what actually gets energy, gets messages to the end of the synapse, correct? That's part of it. So the axon, that long piece that sends out the signals and the, and the communication between neurons is surrounded by, like you said, something called a myelin sheath. And it's called a sheath because it encases and protects the axon, just like a sheath protects a sword. Like if you think back to the, you know, days of King Arthur or whatever. And myelin, you do need a lot of energy just to maintain the myelin, but also myelin is made out of cholesterol largely, cholesterol and fats, and it requires a lot of vitamin B12 for healthy myelin synthesis. Mm. And a lot of older people and not so older people are either overtly B12 deficient, or I think there's a huge epidemic of sort of subclinical, underdiagnosed B12, what I would call insufficiency, maybe not an overt deficiency, but just suboptimal levels. Yes. This B12 is something that you write about in the book. What happens if we don't get enough B12 and what are some good sources? If we're deficient, this is critical to the myelin sheath. And this is the health, the health of the neuron, which is how messages are transported. What are some foods that are rich in B12 and how do we know if we're B12 deficient? So B12 deficiency is sometimes mistaken for dementia because there are neurological side effects that are irreversible. So B12 deficiency is, is a serious issue. And, and I'll talk about the foods in a second, but I did want to say in older people, and again, not so older people, but especially older people, so many millions of our parents and our grandparents and our elders in general are on prescription antacid medication. And these prescription antacids inhibit our ability to absorb B12 and a host of other nutrients. So if you've been taking one of these drugs that deliberately impairs your ability to break down and absorb your nutrients, then, you know, not only dementia is, is a possible outcome of that, but osteoporosis, bone fractures, you know, depression, fatigue, anything. You asked about the signs of B12 deficiency. One of them is memory loss and confusion. Could be loss of balance. If it's severe, you'll have numbness and tingling in your extremities or feelings of cold in the extremities. Mm. Like I said, depression, fatigue, and it, it may or may not show up on a blood test. I'm trying to remember offhand the actual numbers because there are certain things that can mask it. If your folate levels are high enough, I think it can actually mask a B12 deficiency. But the foods that are richest in B12 are some of the foods that we have unfortunately been cautioned away from because they're high in either cholesterol or saturated fat or they're found in red meat. So red meat is a good source. Um, egg yolks. Another great source of B12 is shellfish. Mm. Um, and shellfish also has the omega-3s and, and iodine and zinc that are really, really good for the brain. This B12 too, I did a panel a while back. It was through a company called Wellness FX. My exact measurement I think here was 550. Um, and that's on their scale. So it was really high in the B12. But you're right. If people are having different things going on with their B12 levels being low, there can be a lot of different things. And you list many of those in your book. So scratching just the tip of the surface here, having foods like eggs, having foods like red meat. What do you say to people that don't eat eggs or red meat? I mean, how would they monitor their B12? How would they actually eat in a way if they're vegan or vegetarian to where they could optimize that B12? If you're a vegetarian, a lacto-ovo, you can get B12, especially like we said, from egg yolks. Um, you can get it from, I think dairy products will have some because it's still an animal food, you know, cheese, mm. you know, yogurt, cottage cheese, that kind of thing. Yeah. In a vegan diet, there are supposedly some forms of algae that produce B12, but to my understanding, it's a B12 analog. It's like a variant of B12 that is not as bioactive or as potent as the animal form. It's the same thing with um, with iron, same thing with true vitamin A only comes from animal foods, whereas beta carotene and other 
carotene carotenoid precursors to vitamin A are found in plant foods. And it's just a undeniable fact of human evolution and human physiology that some people due to different genetic polymorphisms, we require the animal forms or we just do best with the animal forms. We do not convert the plant forms of these nutrients into the animal forms that we require as efficiently or as powerfully as other people. So if you are really avoiding all animal products, I recommend um, supplementing. I really do because I think even those algae forms, I'm not sure if you're going to get enough to meet your needs. And this isn't a, something that develops overnight. You know, you're not going to become B12 deficient in a week, but over time, this could take place. And like I said, some of these effects of a long-term B12 deficiency are irreversible. How long have you been studying this actual Alzheimer's condition? And how far back do the roots go, Amy? I started really looking into it in about early 2012 because I was in graduate school for nutrition the first place I ever even heard about a connection between Alzheimer's and glucose and insulin in the brain was in Gary Taubes' book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, which mm -hmm. some of your listeners are probably familiar with. But I don't have any family history of this disease. So it was interesting to me, but it wasn't super fascinating. I didn't really want to jump into it at that time, but I filed it away as something that I might want to look into at some other time. And so it was, you know, four or five years later when I went to graduate school for nutrition. And when I had to pick a thesis topic, I said, you know, what is something that I could write about on research that hasn't been written about a million times already and that I would enjoy learning about and that there would actually be enough scientific research on it that I could write a huge thesis. Right. And I said, you know, I'm going to look into that Alzheimer's thing. And when I started looking on PubMed and I started looking through the medical journals, I just could not believe what I found. And that's, I mean, that's why I wrote this book, because I felt like I stumbled upon a treasure trove, potentially life-saving and life-changing information that nobody knew existed and nobody was talking about. Or if they were talking about it, it was the ivory tower, it was the people in the labs. Nobody was mm. bringing this information to the people who need it most. I tried to make my book the plain English translation of the scientific findings so that people could actually put this stuff into action. And I think you've done a great job of that. Some of the numbers around Alzheimer's, the sixth leading cause of death in the United States, every 66 seconds, somebody develops the disease. And I'm thinking about my grandmother on my father's side. She had it. She didn't know who anyone was for about two years, and then she passed away. This affects more than 5 million Americans. This is a very big topic. It's growing, and there's actually some projections around it growing to 16 million by 2050. And it's, it's going to bankrupt us if it hasn't already. I mean, the healthcare system in general is going to go bankrupt. But, you know, my dad is 71. He's in that baby boomer generation. So as those boomers enter those years, this is going to be an economic and and personal hardship tsunami like we've never seen before like it's yeah it's bad enough that the person who actually develops this condition it's bad enough for them but the real victims are their families their loved ones their spouses their children their their friends you know the people that have to watch this happen to the person and it's not even just medical expenses like in a long-term care facility or going to the doctor there are people that quit their job to assume a full-time caregiving role i mean this bankrupts individual families and i just it doesn't have to be that way and I, i'm not trying to overpromise, and i don't want the listeners to think that i have all the answers that my book is the solution and it's going to work like a charm for everybody i don't promise that but i do think 
you know, we don't have all the answers, but that doesn't mean we have no answers. And we look at proaction versus reaction. There's a lifestyle and habits that you go into depth in in the book. So looking at habits, someone can't find their wallet. They have brain fog and memory loss. We know that aluminum in our antiperspirants and deodorants, aluminum has been linked to memory loss. Are there other things that can contribute to the rapid onset of Alzheimer's besides just environmental toxins and product toxins? That's a good question. So you said a couple of magic phrases there, um, rapid onset and Alzheimer's. So Alzheimer's itself is not a rapid onset disease. Nobody wakes up one day with Alzheimer's disease. Um, This is something that builds over the course of decades, which is why it's so important to be proactive. And um, they can measure the decline in the brain glucose metabolism in people at risk for Alzheimer's as young as their 30s and 40s. So this is something that starts very young. And if you don't do anything about it, it then progresses to the point where your cognition is impaired and you have cognitive decline. When people are that young and they already have a slight decline in their cerebral glucose metabolism, they have no signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's. They feel fine, their their thinking is fine, they're mentally sharp because they're young and their brain is compensating. But over time, you reach a point It used to be a joke. They used to call it old timers disease, right? But it's not old timers anymore. We we are no longer talking about people in their 80s and 90s. We're talking about people in their 50s and 60s getting this, you know, what they call early onset dementia, early onset Alzheimer's. And this is not, again, this is not something that develops overnight. So there are other things that can contribute to a rapid onset, but I would call that some other form of dementia that is specifically induced by something else. There's actually been several cases now of um, people getting surgery or something and the anesthesia has some type of effect where pretty quickly after some type of surgery or procedure where they had anesthesia, they either develop some type of cognitive decline or some people will have other neurological symptoms like a you know, paralysis or some, almost like a Parkinsonian type tremor. Sure. And other than that, I mean, I think certain trauma can do it, but that's more like a traumatic brain injury. That's more of a physical trauma causing maybe a a vascular dementia, like a reduced blood flow to the brain. But I think there are a lot of other dementias being diagnosed as Alzheimer's. But to me, Alzheimer's is or should be defined by that the lack of glucose metabolism in the brain. This measurement too, you talked about sometimes in their 30s and 40s, people can be experiencing this decline. How do we quantify that, Amy? How do we measure this in our 30s or at any age? It's hard to answer that because they, I would say, get a fasting insulin test every time you're at the doctor, when you go for your checkup every year, every six months, whatever, insist on a fasting insulin test. Because if your fasting insulin is getting higher, you are inching toward the danger zone. That's that's number one. Unfortunately, there's no easy way to measure the brain's glucose usage. It can be measured, but it's not something you do in the average doctor's office or the average lab. Um, it's something they do, you know, in advanced labs when they when they do these studies. And it's, you know, it's, it's a PET scan. The reason it's the same scan they do for cancer is because cancer cells thrive on glucose. So they inject you with this radio-labeled form of glucose that they can track with this machinery, and they see where the glucose is being sucked up and concentrated the most. And that's how they can see where your tumor is and how large it is and where it's spread to. Mm. I mean, that's so... Bottom line, like this is a whole other topic for another show. If you have cancer, yeah. you might want to limit your glucose intake. But with Alzheimer's, so this can be measured, but it's definitely not easy to measure. It's not something you can order, you know, through your doctor. Unfortunately, it's probably pretty subjective, except, you know, make sure you get your insulin tested. And other than that, it's probably just really subjective. 
Yeah, Amy, I'm thinking about someone that is experiencing brain fog and they could be in their 30s or 40s. How do we delineate between brain fog and someone that is experiencing the early stages of Alzheimer's? I think they're not unrelated. I'm not going to say, oh, if you have brain fog in your 30s, you're going to get dementia. I mean, I, I can't say that. But I think brain fog is at least an acute short-term indicator of some type of energy problem in your brain. And so in that sense, you can measure your blood glucose at home and you can see if you're maybe getting a little hypoglycemic, you know, and then you might have confusion, lightheadedness, you know, dizziness, but those are signs of like acute hypoglycemia. Just in general, the brain not getting enough fuel, I think it's helpful to keep an eye on your blood sugar, which you can do easily at home with the glucometer. You know, I don't want to scare people. I think every now and then we all have those moments. You know, and, and yeah. you know, you could be in your 20s and 30s and you, you, you have a senior moment. You, you walk into the room and you forget why you went there. You misplaced your keys. Like that's a little bit of that is normal. But when it starts happening to the point that it's increasing to the point that you notice like, hey, I'm, I'm having a real problem lately remembering things or I keep misplacing things, then you want to jump on that and see what's going on. I've done a lot of tests that we've talked about on the show, just quantification, self-quantification. You talked about the Alzheimer's gene in the book, the APOE34. We mentioned this on the podcast with Dr. Perlmutter, which we'll link in the show notes, but this has become really important in Alzheimer's disease research because people that have a copy of it are at greater risk for developing Alzheimer's than those who do not. And I actually got this tested. I do have that. So I have an APOE34. And my curiosity around this is once we find out through a specific test. What's the kind of test that you recommend? Do you have a preferred lab? And then secondly, where do we begin? Yeah, I don't have a preferred lab. I mean, it's a genetic test. It's not, um, there's not a reference range for it. There's no high, low, normal. There's just, here's what your genetic type is. So at least you only have to get it done once because it never changes. Any lab should be able to do it. Uh, in terms of what you do about it, j just so we're clear, they sort of flippantly refer to this as, you know, quote unquote, the Alzheimer's gene. But people should know that, first of all, not everybody with this gene, even if you have two copies, if you're E4E4, E4, not everyone who has this gene develops Alzheimer's and millions upon millions of people who do have Alzheimer's do not carry this gene. So this gene does not cause Alzheimer's, but it does increase your susceptibility. Now, the interesting thing about this APOE4 is that there is, there is a, a hypothesis, and I guess it is a hypothesis, maybe it's a theory at this point, I don't know. It is believed that this particular gene was selected against in historical populations that were eating a high-carbohydrate diet. The frequency of this gene, it's more common in hunter-gatherer populations. It has a low frequency in the, in the high-carb eating populations. So the people with the E4 gene seem to be the least suited for a high-carbohydrate intake. I'm not trying to demonize all carbohydrate. I'm not saying like lentils and beans and, and uh, like, you know, beets and parsnips are a problem for healthy cognitive function. Sure. But, you know, those kinds of carbs are just a world apart from Pop-Tarts and Frosted Flakes and raisins and, you know, sugar sweetened soda. So um, what to do about that E4 seems to be, and, and there's a lot of controversy about this actually, but it does seem to be the, the most important thing is to get rid of the refined carbohydrate and the grains. Um, focus a lot more on a lot of the fatty seafood, shellfish. Good quality animal protein is fine too, like land, you know, mammal protein, whether it's um, beef or lamb or pork, goat, that kind of thing. And lots and lots of healthy fat. So I know um, if your audience knows Stephen Gundry, he's kind of an expert on the E4. He loads people up with olive oil, like insane amounts of olive oil, but you know, avocado oil would be good, nuts and seeds, 
there's some controversy about saturated fat. Some of the E4s have what we call an exaggerated response to saturated fat, meaning that when they eat a lot of saturated fat, their cholesterol levels go through the roof. You know, your your listeners probably know that there's a lot of debate now about cholesterol and, and sure. quote unquote high cholesterol isn't necessarily a problem if everything else looks good, but that's sort of up for debate. We don't really know. Um, but I, I think the most important thing an E4 can do is get off the, the sugar and starch. And that's a really big building block too, because the research that suggests people with the E4 genotype might really respond in a negative way to high amounts of saturated fat. And I did this actually with Dr. Murdoch Kalehi. He was the chief physician at Wellness FX. And I found that my cholesterol did go up with my increase of saturated fat. So when I started to take on doing more of an olive oil approach, that's what actually dropped my cholesterol back into the healthy range. Have you seen this in your research where people that typically intake olive oil in comparison to high amounts of saturated fat, is that something where we can apply that blanket of truth or is it really specific for each person? The majority of my clients, at least so far, are more like weight loss, you know, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, and that's it's less of an issue. And, and, and most of them don't even really concern themselves with their E4 status. They're more concerned about insulin in general, fat loss, that kind of thing. I don't know if it's individual or not. I think it's a pretty standard thing that when you do reduce saturated fat, your cholesterol will go down. But I, I think there there are so many variations in how people respond to diet with cholesterol. And I just, yeah. I have to emphasize again, you know, we can't say for sure that higher cholesterol or even higher LDL, the quote unquote bad cholesterol is anything to worry about when your insulin is low and your inflammation is low and, and your triglycerides are low. We just don't know. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that energy is something we always can use more of. But how do we do this through natural foods? Unfortunately, it takes about 25,000 calories to get all the energy and micronutrients we need from even eating organic and natural foods. This is why I'm excited today to talk to you about Asahi Revive. One of the many reasons I stand behind this perfect Asahi Revive product is because you are getting four energy boosting blends in one. Organic Asahi, Rhodiola Rosea, Organic Cordyceps, and Grape Extract. This delivers sustained energy and focus throughout the day without the jitters and the caffeine crash of that third or fourth or fifth cup of coffee. Make sure to pick up your four-in-one supplement. Make it easier to get some more energy today for your busy day by clicking over to perfectsupplements.com forward slash wellness force to grab your Asahi Revive. Enter code wellness force to get 10% off your entire order. And the brain energy connection here, how does the brain actually get the energy? Let's let's talk about this. There's gluconeogenesis. We've mentioned this a few times, I believe, in the past probably 50 shows, this metabolic pathway that results in the generation of glucose from, you know, different types of energy sources, whether it be non-carbohydrate sources like proteins and fats. Can you tell us about gluconeogenesis and how this relates to the eating patterns that we might have? Gluconeogenesis is the big fancy word that literally means the making of new glucose. You know, people are kind of afraid of this because it's like, oh, that's going to make glucose in my body and I'm purposely following this low-carb or ketogenic diet. Except we owe a debt of gratitude to gluconeogenesis because we would frankly die without it. You know, gluconeogenesis is, it is the reason that you could eat a zero carbohydrate diet. You could eat a diet that was nothing but steak and olive oil if you want. I mean, I'm not saying that's necessarily recommended, but it is, <laughs> yeah. it's biochemically and physiologically possible because even when you're on a ketogenic diet or a very, very low carb diet, 
the brain always needs some glucose. Even when the brain is being fueled by ketones, it will always still need at least a little bit of glucose. There's a reason your blood glucose never goes to zero. You know, uh, we always need some glucose and we better have a way to make it if we're not eating any. So the body will make it out of amino acids. It will make it out of fat. When we break down fats, part of the fat molecule can be made into glucose. So there's really no... Um, no worry or no concern at all that your brain or your body isn't going to get enough glucose if you're on a very low-carb diet. Yeah, this is the juiciest part of our conversation yet. I feel like this low-carb aspect, lower-carb, higher-fat intake, this is what's really helping to buffer against Alzheimer's. And this has come up quite a bit in research across the board. So how do we determine this then? What amount of carbohydrate load for us as an individual? How many grams to eat each day? Is this a combination of trial and error, Amy? Or are there some specific genetic or biomarker tests we can do to adjust the eating patterns? Good question. Again, um, it's a little bit of both. People definitely vary widely in what we call the carbohydrate tolerance. Uh, younger people, very athletic, very muscular people, very active people have a higher carbohydrate tolerance. Now, those people can do a very low carb diet if they want, but they have a lot more wiggle room if they want to enjoy whatever it is. Maybe they just want a, a larger amount of some of the more wholesome, you know, sweet potatoes, yams, you know, or maybe every now and then they want to have a, you know, pizza and beer with the guys, or they want to have nachos and wings. Like every now and then that's the every now and then is not what's hurting our brain. It's when first thing in the morning, we throw a ton of straight glucose down our throats, right? We drink orange juice, we eat a bagel. Three hours later, we're snacking on crackers. An hour later, we have lunch and we have a sandwich and chips. Three hours later, we're snacking on a granola bar. Two hours later, we have lunch, you know, dinner and we have pasta and breadsticks. Like it's the endless onslaught of starch all day long and sugar. So it's not the like every, you know, once a month you go out for whatever it is, Mexican food or something. So the carbohydrate tolerance does vary. Everybody can start at a ketogenic level, which is varies from person to person. Some people need to stay under 30 grams of carbs a day. Some people can go as high as 50 or 60. You can sort of start there. And some people love that. Some people thrive and enjoy staying at 30 to 50 grams of carbs a day or even less. Some people might want to go to 100, 150, and that's fine. They can absolutely tolerate it, especially if they're more active. It's a little bit subjective. You know, you know how you feel. You know how you feel physically, how your energy levels are, if you have enough energy to perform in your workouts the way you want to, if your thinking is sharp. But other than that, you can keep an eye on some of the blood work. Of course, your fasting insulin, the glucose, your hemoglobin A1C, which is kind of an average over a longer period of time of your glucose, and um, your triglycerides. If your triglycerides are elevated, that's a sure sign that you are eating more carbohydrate than is right for you. Yeah, this is powerful too, because there is a bit of an adaptation period when people go low carb. And like you said, and honestly, like many people who've come on the show have mentioned, it is unique to everyone. Some people can really thrive on 30 to 50. Some people need 150 grams of carbohydrates a day. But there is this kind of time frame where there's the, you say it's the low carb flu in your book. This is a dramatic change for most people. So going from running on carbohydrates to running on fat, it's going to be a shock to the body. Can you tell us about the adjustment period? How do people work through that both emotionally and with their dietary choices? Depending on how carbed up you are, so to speak, the transition is going to be harder or easier. If your diet contains a very large amount of starch and sugar and carbohydrate, your transition is probably going to be harder than someone who's already, you know, 
either doing a paleo diet or just not eating quite as much carbohydrate in general. And it is, it's a major shock because you are making a fundamental change in how your body gets the majority of its energy. And I say the majority because like I said, even on a ketogenic diet, you will still be burning glucose in some of your cells. I mean, it's not binary, it's not all or nothing. And a lot of the really bad stuff within the first couple of days, you know, you might get really terrible headaches, dizziness, nausea, lightheadedness. A lot of that is electrolyte imbalances because when your insulin levels come down much lower than they're accustomed to being, your kidneys basically dump out a whole ton of minerals. That's why you lose so much water weight at first because you're just peeing it all out basically. Yeah, some people are like, oh, I lost seven pounds in seven days and I just look at them and say, that's water. But it wasn't seven pounds of fat, you know, which is fine. I mean, that that's water. Like so many people are bloated. We have edema. Like we need to lose that water. Like that's okay. But then they need to realize that the rate of that weight loss is going to slow down as they actually start tapping into the body fat. It's a pretty rough transition for some people, but the worst of it, the worst of those physical symptoms really should pass in a matter of days. And and the way around that is to take a lot more salt than you think you need. A ketogenic diet dramatically changes the way the kidneys hold on to all of these electrolytes. You need a lot more sodium than you think you do, more um, magnesium. And if you have leg cramps, especially at night, uh, potassium, potassium and magnesium are good for those. But, you know, the psychological adaptation I think it's entirely individual. You know, some people have felt so terrible for so long. And after the initial first couple of days where you feel worse before you feel better, once that fog lifts, they feel like a million bucks and their psychological transition is like non-existent because they've never felt so good. Why would they ever go back to what made them feel so terrible? All of a sudden they have energy, they're thinking sharply, their joint pain is gone, you know, they're not bloated. So um, that's easier. But I think for some people, sometimes the cravings never go away or they they become less. I'm just not a zealot about this. I do think it's okay, like once a month or whatever, go to the Cheesecake Factory, get whatever the thing is that you want. If being able to have it once in a while helps you stay on the straight and narrow, like the, you know, 92% of the rest of the time, I really think that's okay. Also, too, it's like people that are doing this change, it's totally normal. This is like a drug addiction. You know, your body is used to one thing. It's totally natural that you're going to experience a fog. And then on the other side, it can be really bright. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge change, but you you will feel better after you feel worse. And and there are, for people that are ambitious in the kitchen and that want to take time in the kitchen, thanks to some very creative food bloggers and, and cookbook authors, there are so many cookbooks and recipes for this, that there's almost anything you're craving under the sun, you can make a low carb version. Mm. You know, I think obviously, ideally, we want to break ourselves of the need for that sweet stuff altogether. But it's not the end of the world. If you make a sugar free, you know, flourless brownie using coconut flour or something like that, like it's not the end of the world. If, if that's what helps you actually stick to this way of eating, then do it and don't feel guilty for it. There's a common myth about the glucose, which we touched on a little bit, but it's been published in probably decades of research that glucose is supposedly the only fuel for the brain. But this flies in the face of a low carb, high fat approach. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like I said, you can you can absolutely be just fine eating zero glucose. And it's precisely because of gluconeogenesis. We can make glucose on demand, so to speak. The brain will always need a little bit of glucose. But when you are on a low-carb or ketogenic diet and your brain is getting, you know, upwards of 40 to 60, I, I've even seen some papers say 80, that when you're in a very deeply ketogenic state, 
ketones will account for 80% of the brain's energy. I think that's, most people are not going to get to that point, but let's say you're getting 40 to 60% of your brain's energy from ketones. Yeah. Well, your brain still needs glucose, but it needs far less. Maybe it only needs to account for then, you know what, 40 to 50% of its fuel from glucose instead of like 80 to 90. Yeah. I'm visualizing someone that's going through this change. Is it a ramp up period, Amy, where they're going into ketosis, where they're going to be checking with the glucometer and things like that? Or is it just cold turkey? Is there a ramp up process or do we do it all of a sudden one morning we decide? Either way, you can rip the bandaid off all at once and ditch all the carbohydrate from your, or not all, but you know, the vast majority of the carbs from your diet. Yeah. Or you can do it gradually. And and if you do it gradually, you're probably not going to experience that keto flu, the headaches and the dizziness and all that. And what I recommend for that, you know, each week, pick one particular starchy or sugary food that you're going to eliminate. So let's say week one, no more bread of any kind. Week two, no more bread and no more pasta. Week three, no more bread, no more pasta, no more rice. So that over time, you've eliminated everything, but it was a much more gradual, much more easy for you to do. Now, depending on what somebody's goal is, if it's somebody who has severe dementia or, you know, severely obese, severely insulin resistant, depending on what somebody's goal is, I might recommend ripping the bandaid off and just doing it all at once. But if that's a non-starter, if somebody would prefer to do it gradually, well, do it however you can. Yeah. And I'm visualizing someone who's taking these early steps where they might be just stripping things one at a time throughout the week, or all of a sudden when they've done it, maybe they have such incredible headaches and they just can't function at work. There's also some timing aspect that goes into this too, when adopting the low carb, the higher fat. What do you say about people that are in work environments that are highly stressful? Does stress load play a part in this integration of the low carb aspect? I do recommend that If people are going to jump in head first and just like rip the bandaid off, like I said, if they have a typical, you know, five day a week job, I do recommend that they plan it so that day two or three falls on a weekend. Mm. Because when I expect them to feel worse, I want them to be at home so they can stay in bed or (laughs) stay in the bathroom or whatever they have to do. You know, they (laughs) if they can or maybe take a day off, like plan the schedule so that you do not have something demanding to do on the first maybe two or three days. Because the first 24 hours you're going to feel fine because you're actually still, your body is still working through your stored carbohydrate. That's your, your glycogen stores. After about 24 to 48 hours, that's gone. That's when you start dipping into the fat. That's when you hit the first point of ketosis, that's generally when people feel terrible. And it's because even though they're technically in ketosis, right, their body's generating ketones, it's such a change to their body. Their body hasn't quite ramped up the metabolic machinery, the enzymes to use all of this fuel appropriately. So it's almost like they're in this like metabolic limbo because their body's not getting the glucose it needs, but it's not prepared to handle all these ketones yet. And this is such a great point. I'm so glad we're talking about this. A lot of things that are posted that I see on social right now, we all know like ketosis is a very hot topic. There are companies that are selling different ketone powders and esters. What are your thoughts around that in supporting someone who's doing a low carb approach, a higher fat approach, if they're not happy? I think this is a key indicator. If they're not happy with their brain and how it functions or their body and their leanness, do you feel like exogenous ketones are a fit for everyone or how do we decipher if they're a fit for us? They are definitely not a fit for everyone, but they are a great fit for some people. Um, And I'm I'm so glad we're talking about this because this is such a huge issue right now. I do think that these exogenous ketones, because of the fuel supply they deliver to the brain, even in somebody who is eating a high carbohydrate diet, 
if you take exogenous ketones or even if you take MCT oil, which is a, a special type of oil that converts the ketones much more readily than any other type of fat that we could eat. This is in the coffee where people do the bulletproof coffee just so yeah, that we're noting that. Yeah, they're doing MCT yeah. oil or coconut oil, which is a which mm-hmm. is a source of those MCTs, medium chain triglycerides. Um, if somebody is unable or unwilling to change their diet but would benefit from having ketones like somebody who's very severely demented or very old who you are not going to get these people to give up their English muffin and, and grape jam overnight for eggs cooked in butter or coconut oil. In those cases, absolutely give them the ketones because they will have improved cognition. They will have an improved quality of life. Their loved ones and caregivers will have a a break. But you have to know that that's a short-term fix. That's not actually doing anything to correct the underlying insulin resistance and glycation and damage in the brain, which is, which is fine. Like if all you can do is manage the symptoms so somebody can live out their last few months or years in a slightly better state, there's nothing wrong with that. And I do think that exogenous ketones can also, there's some evidence that they can boost athletic performance because it's just like taking, it's almost like taking an energy drink because that's what it is. Ketones are energy. They're a fuel substrate. So, um, you can take it either before or during a, especially like an endurance event. I think they can help. I don't think they're all that great as a fat loss tool because again, they are a fuel. And it's so it's just like eating. If you're going to eat ketones, your body has absolutely no reason to make them. So I guess the big misconception specifically with using ketones for fat loss, ketones do not cause fat loss. Ketones are the result of breaking down fat, not the cause. So it's not the case that if you can just get your ketones high enough, you're going to lose weight. It doesn't work that way. In fact, if your ketones are high because you're taking exogenous ketones, your body really has no reason then to burn its own fat stores to make ketones inside you. That being said, I have not used exogenous ketones much in my practice, but physicians who do use it have said, and I I sort of respect this as a good use for these ketones, it helps some people make this transition. Supposedly, it actually eases that keto flu. So if you want to take the ketones for a couple of days or weeks, fine, but don't you know, don't rely on them as a long-term strategy. What the real benefits of a ketogenic diet come from the biochemical changes that happen in order to get your body to produce ketones. Wow, this is so powerful. I know there's some devices out there that can measure different blood levels for ketones. There's actually a breathalyzer, a company called Level. I don't know if you've heard of this, and they measure the acetate in the breath. So we know that science is looking at this beyond just the decades of research on how this can heal Alzheimer's. I mean, really what we're talking about today is how do we live life well in both our brain and our body? This has been such a great conversation, Amy. The last section of our show, it's seven questions where we get to know you a little bit deeper. Are you ready? Okay. All right. I'm intrigued. (laughs) When we're looking at the eating, moving and sleeping or the existential or internal stressors we experience in life, which factor is considered to be the most pivotal in helping to prevent Alzheimer's disease? If I had to choose one with Alzheimer's, can can I say it's diet? Absolutely. That would be it. Just too much. Again, I'm not trying to demonize carbohydrate across the board, but really the crap, the crap carbohydrates, the constant inundation with them. Yeah. And just for someone listening to what are the three different types of carbs that you like on a low carb diet? Any of the non-starchy vegetables, so like leafy greens, broccoli, cauliflower, eggplant, mm-hmm. zucchini, all of that stuff's great. Other carbs that are just fine are some of the lower glycemic fruits, like berries, you know, even maybe small amounts of melon, you know, small amounts, uh, no juice, eat, yeah. eat the whole pieces of fruit. And there are people, you know, if you have a higher carb tolerance, 
some people really can do fine with beans because beans are, you know, fairly nutritious. They are high in fiber. And I'd be hard pressed to say that, you know, lentils and kidney beans are causing dementia. How has your diet changed personally after doing so many years of testing and research? What might you eat on a high volume training day? I prefer to work out fasted. And it's not that I feel like I have more energy. It's more like I I'll get sick if I work out on a full stomach. I'll just you know, not feel well. I bounce in and out of a lot of things. Um, I've made kind of the mistake in the past of overdoing the fat a little bit. It is possible to eat too much fat on a ketogenic diet, particularly if your goal is weight loss or fat loss. You know, if you have some other goal like supporting neurological health, that's that kind of requires a different approach. I think in general, people, myself included, were making the mistake of eating very, very high fat at the expense of too little protein. What about the biggest myth? There's so many different pieces of info out there about Alzheimer's. What's one of the biggest myths that you hear about in regards to Alzheimer's that you'd like to help change? It's not something specific. It's just the general notion that we are clueless, that we have no idea where this is coming from, why it's happening, or what to do about it. Because I'll, you know, real quick, like when we talk about cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes and obesity and all of these other issues, we take it for granted that diet and lifestyle play a role, that whether they're causing it or they could help reverse it, we just accept that as fact. Nobody debates that. And yet, when it comes to Alzheimer's, we throw our hands up like, oh, we just were clueless. We have no idea where this is coming from. We're just absolutely out of information. And I think that is a, probably the biggest myth. For someone who wants to take some inspired action tomorrow morning, what are the first two or three steps they can take to begin creating a healthy brain and protecting it to be healthy for the rest of their life? If your first step of the morning is to pour yourself a bowl of cereal and skim milk, ditch that and boil up yourself a couple of eggs. Mm, that is probably the best piece of advice because I think some people are like, well, there's so many things I have to do. I'm just going to make no choices. It's almost like the more information we have, the less change that we do. So thank you for mentioning that. Paralysis by analysis. And I, I so we all <laughs> suffer from it. The, the more you know, sure. the harder it is to decipher what is actually meaningful. So we've gone in different directions around nutrition, but in regards to exercise, what specific types of exercise help to support healthy neurological function? Anything, anything you can do to get your body moving. I do think every now and then doing something higher intensity is important, but I think it's also important to just stay active. And not only because, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. Exercise is very good for glucoregulation. It's very good for maintaining insulin sensitivity, but the higher intensity stuff induces something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. I interviewed with a doctor a while back and I told him I was going to steal this line. He said, BDNF is like miracle grow for your neurons. Hmm. So I think anything you can do to get yourself moving is important, but try to do something intense, you know, regularly. It doesn't have to be every day. I don't think, you know, t too much exercise is just as bad as too little, like too much, yeah. too intense without sufficient recovery and, su and sufficient nutrient replenishment. So, you know, not everybody has to do an Ironman triathlon 10 times a year, but, you know, do get up and move. And I'm so glad you mentioned that too, because the sweet spot, the Goldilocks zone for everyone, it's so unique. There are people out there that can do heavy exercise five times a week, but you know, you take your neighbor and it would probably crush their immune system. So thank you for reminding us about that too. I feel like we've danced around that today on the show quite a bit, Amy, understanding that it takes effort and intelligence and time to really learn which kind of diet or exercise pieces we can put in that are going to be sustainable. How does someone know in regards to nutrition though? 
for intermittent fasting. You know, we have this autophagy where the cellular cleanup happens. How do we know if it's right for us to do this intermittent fasting? There's very few people it's wrong for. Of course, I mean, children, pregnant women, breastfeeding women, people with histories of, of disordered eating. Like it's, it's not appropriate for everyone. And if you're already underweight, if you're already not eating enough, where many, many women, especially young women, but even older women tend to under eat without even realizing they think that 1200 calories is enough to sustain a, you know, a grown woman throughout her workday and a workout and taking care of the kids. It's hard to say it's, I just think it's worth a try. Why not try it? And, and you don't have to fast for, you know, 36 hours. What you can do is just yeah. skip breakfast, delay, you know, shorten your feeding window, so to speak. So if you wake up, your insulin levels are nice and low, your glucose is nice and low, hang on to that good state as long as you can. When your insulin level is low, it's when your body's going to be running more on fat. It's when your brain is going to be fueled more on fat. You'd be surprised how long you can go, you know, and then maybe have lunch and dinner that day. What is wellness to you now in your life with the research you've done and, you know, so much digging into metabolism and lifestyle and an Alzheimer's antidote, this book you've created? What is wellness to you at this point in your journey? Oh, no one's ever asked me that. Um, I would say wellness is a means to an end. It is not an end in itself. And I get clients like this all the time who are so obsessed with learning and reading, and they've read every blog, they've listened to every podcast, they've seen every summit, every video, and they're paralyzed, like we said before. They, they are paralyzed with information overload, and they're scared yeah. because there's a lot of conflicting information, and it actually starts to work against their health and wellness because they're so worried and stressed out and fearful and anxious all the time. So if your health practices should add to your quality of life, not detract from it, and I think that's that's where I am. If I feel good physically, mentally, emotionally, and I'm able to accomplish what I want to in my life, that's my wellness. Such a great answer. I've enjoyed this conversation we've had today so much. And people can learn more about you at your website. It's tuitnutrition.com. Why'd you name it that? There's a little explanation on my blog. It has to do with this little round coin my mother used to carry when I was a kid. It was called a round to it. Mm. It was T-U-I-T. It's, it's basically a wake up call to like, get to it. What are you, you know, you've always been waiting. Oh, I'll do that when I get around to it. Someday I'll get around to it. Well, now you have the round to it. So I am to it nutrition. What are you waiting for? Get to it. Amy, thanks so much for your work. We talk so much about the healthy brain. Do you feel like there's anything we didn't talk about that you'd love to express in this last piece for parting guidance? Go to sleep. If you are concerned about your brain function later on in life, make sure you are sleeping. You can find out why in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Berger, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Hey, my friend, thank you for hanging out and growing with me on today's show. Remember to hit subscribe, share this podcast with somebody you care about that you think gets to hear this message. Support the show by leaving a five-star review for the podcast right now, simply by tapping on your show artwork on your iPhone. Click that purple link that says review this podcast. It helps the show reach more conscious and smart people like you, and your voice will attract more world-class guests that want to come on the show. So let them hear your voice. For all the downloads, videos, links, and free resources mentioned on the episode, go to wellnessforce.com forward slash radio. And while you're at my house on the web, join us in the Wellness Force community newsletter on that page and I'll send you four free guides around staying healthy with your eating, moving, and sleeping while you travel. Join a group of people like you over at the Wellness Force community Facebook page. This is where we talk about the things that really matter. We share our wins, inspirations, struggles, and a lot more. So join us, tap on the show artwork on your phone and hit that purple link that says join the Facebook group and I will welcome you at the door. Okay, now you get to go out into your world and create impact for the people that you care about. 
So until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness.